0: Charlotte.
1: And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum.
0: First things first before we get into today's story and it is such a cool story. I'm very excited to share it with you. I have to thank everyone who donated to the Stream Daddy's Extra Life on the weekend. We did our 24 hour technically 25 hour because of the time change gaming marathon and we managed to surpass our goal of $2,000 going towards the Stollery Children's Hospital here in Edmonton and I know for a fact a couple of listeners donated so thank you thank you thank you you know who you are and you are awesome and thank you for everyone who like stopped by the stream and said hi you guys are just wonderful and I wanted to take a sec to thank you all.
1: That is amazing, and that is such a wonderful cause, so good job, seriously. Oh, thank you. I mean, this is my, I think it's sixth year
0: now, being a part of it and gaming with my wonderful friends. Two of our good friends that are a part of the Stream Daddies group have been, I think this is their 10th year now, which is super, super awesome. So yeah, it's a wonderful cause. Definitely check it out. I'll keep putting the link in the description of our shows uh, for a little while, just because you can keep donating until December 31st of this year. And then it just rolls over to 2024. So if you haven't donated and you would like to, you still definitely can. Like I said, it's all
1: much appreciated. And
0: uh, yeah, anyway, we'll we'll get into the show.
1: (laughs) All right. So today's story takes us to 1976. It was two years before Christmas in good old Long Beach, California. The cast and crew of the hit show, The Six Million Dollar
0: Man, were filming on location, filming their fourth season.
1: Let's talk a little bit about that show because a few of our listeners may not be familiar with it. All right,
0: so The Six Million Dollar Man first aired in March of 1973, and it centers around a man named Steve Austin, which I always think is hilarious because I think of Stone Cold Steve Austin, That's the what I thought, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just the character name, and he is played by Lee Majors, and Steve is your average handsome astronaut living his life until one day he suffers life-threatening injuries after a spaceship crash.
1: Luckily, his life is saved after a government-sanctioned experimental surgery where the damaged parts of his body are replaced with advanced machinery, making him a superhuman cyborg. And of course, he uses this new power for good and dedicates his life to fighting evil. Now, you might be listening to this and wondering, okay, so how grim could this story possibly be? Right,
0: because so far, so far so good, it doesn't sound too bad. But don't worry, folks, this story takes a very bizarre turn. Let's get back to December of 1976. They were filming, and there was a scene where Steve Austin was fighting an evil German spy inside of a funhouse. I think I need to watch this show. I do too. I remember my dad and my mom talking about it, like being on TV when they were kids, but I've never actually seen it. So I think
1: maybe we need to find it somewhere. I mean, it's it's a lot. The plot is a lot, but I kind of love it. <laughs> so this
0: particular scene was meant to be quite intense with lots of tension and jump scares. So the props department
1: decided to put an old dummy that they found to use. It had been hidden away in the funhouse. At first glance, it appeared to be a horribly made dummy of an emaciated man. No one really gave any question about where it came from, and it really didn't look like much. It had been spray painted with glow in the dark paint and was suspended from a noose. Prior to this, the funhouse
0: had been undisturbed for quite a long amount of time, leaving items in it relatively untouched. Suddenly, a rush of air caused this dummy to swing back and forth on the noose, and not
1: long after, there was a loud snap. They quickly ran to retrieve the dummy and saw that its arm had broken off. They took turns holding it and laughing, When one of them happened to look at it a little bit closer. To their horror, they saw a human bone inside that was still surrounded by some muscle tissue. They were holding the very real, very decomposed arm of a human being.
0: Which brings us to the adventures of Elmer McCurdy and his
1: corpse. This is a fun one. Oh my goodness. I went into this knowing about just the discovery part of the story because it's one of those like true urban legend type stories that I think a lot of people have heard of. But I knew nothing about who he was or the things he did. And this is some next level weekend at Bernie's but make it morbid shit.
0: Okay, so same sort of thing for me as well. I kind of know the Wikipedia level of this story, so I'm excited to see the twists and turns and where it's going to take us.
1: We are in for a hell of a
0: ride, I can promise you that. Now, dear listener, you probably have a
1: lot of questions already. One being, who the hell was Elmer McCurdy? And another being, how does one end up with their body on display at a funhouse decades later without anyone knowing?
0: Well, today we're going to answer both of those questions and more. This story is going to take us down some
1: wild twists and turns. And it starts in one of our favorite places ever, the Wild West.
0: Elmer McCurdy was born on January 1st, 1880 to 17-year-old Sadie McCurdy. We aren't quite sure who his father was, but it is rumored that it was Charles Smith, a cousin of Sadie's.
1: So we're already off to an awesome start. This is very um,
0: Red Dead Redemption, you know? Like, I feel like you might meet these people. I know 1880 is a little before, I believe, the setting of uh, Red Dead and Red Dead 2, but still same sort of feel to it.
1: Oh, you're going to agree with that the further we get into this?
0: Oh, no. Okay, let's, let's keep going. So, Sadie knew that she wasn't ready to be a mother. She was unmarried at the time and felt that this would have brought a huge shame upon her family. To spare them from this, her brother George and his wife Helen agreed to adopt little Elmer under the guise that he was their biological
1: son. When Elmer was around 10, George passed away from tuberculosis and Helen moved the family to Bangor, Maine. One day when he was 17,
0: Sadie revealed to him that she was indeed his biological mother and not Helen. This shook his world.
1: While we don't know a lot about the early life of Elmer McCurdy, it does seem as if this was the turning point for him. Shortly after this, he began to rebel, and it was around this time that he developed a drinking problem, one that would stay with him until his death.
0: Around the same time, he moved in with his grandfather and found work as an apprentice plumber. He was a hard worker and seemed to enjoy his job. He made enough money to live comfortably, and for a short while, it appeared that
1: life was going well for Elmer. That is, until the alcoholism took over and began to get in the way of his ability to work. Soon enough, he was having trouble holding down employment and was lucky to be able to get the odd job here and there. That combined with the ever-worsening economy made it almost impossible for him to earn an honest living. He suffered a lot of loss during this time. His mother passed away from a ruptured ulcer and shortly after that, his grandfather passed away too. He eventually traveled throughout the country in an attempt to find work, but it was usually futile. Eventually, he ended up in Iola, Kansas, and this is likely when his first arrest happened.
0: The earliest arrest records for Elmer McCurdy are for public intoxication in 1905. In 1907, he joined the United States Army, where he was assigned a job
1: as a machine gun operator in Fort Leavenworth. This was where he was trained to use nitroglycerin, a substance so volatile that when Ascanio Sobrero first prepared it, he almost chose not to publish it because of how dangerous it was.
0: That's right,
1: because nitroglycerin likes to
0: explode, and this would
1: come in handy for Elmer later. On November 7, 1910, he was served with an honorable discharge and went back to Kansas. Less than two weeks later, he was arrested again. This time, Elmer and a friend of his were caught for the possession of burglary paraphernalia.
0: It was clear that they were caught red-handed, but Elmer had an explanation for everything. He said that the items were not for the purpose of burglary. They were in the process of inventing a new kind of machine gun and needed them to work on their big project. That's a big deal to say that. That's quite a stretch. People could have come up with a simpler and more believable lie.
1: Right. It's like, no, I'm not a criminal. I'm actually like a brilliant scientist that's inventing like these amazing things that are going to change the world in like a terrible way. No, you you could have gone like further down from that. Yeah, I'm not
0: sneaking around at night with a
1: mask on for any other reason either. (laughs) So they obviously did not buy his story, and he was taken away to jail where he remained while he waited for his trial. Believe it or not, he was actually found not guilty. When he was released from jail, he was in a tough position. He had no money and no job, so he decided to do the next best thing in his mind, become a bank robber.
0: And this is where the trouble really began.
1: For starters, robbing a bank, even back then, was no easy feat. And Elmer McCurdy was a shit bank robber.
0: We mean it. Elmer McCurdy is probably by far one of the worst criminals we have ever covered. And not because his crimes were
1: heinous, but because he was heinous at committing said crimes. In many of the reports about him, he's referred to as a buffoon, and I think that's the best way to describe him.
0: He decided to use his knowledge of nitroglycerin to his advantage, but it doesn't really seem like he had a good enough grasp of how to use it.
1: While he had been trained, it appears that the training had been a giant waste of time because he honestly had no idea what he was doing. Here's just one example. During
0: one of his heists, he decided to use nitroglycerin to blow open a safe that was being transported on a train. He calculated wrong and instead blew the safe up, destroying the $4,000 in it. And that's $4,000
1: in those days. Oh, that's a lot of money. A lot of money. Holy cow. To his credit, he managed to make off with a few hundred dollars in silver, but it was nowhere near the intended amount.
0: Another story of his exploits tells of another attempt where he once again calculated wrong and blew up the entire bank. The only thing left standing was the safe, which remained shut. <laughs>
1: like, what kind of Looney Tunes bullshit is this? I just picture like it's one of those scenes where like the bank blows up, and then it's just the safe, and then his like pants come down to reveal he's wearing like flowery boxers or something. Totally, it's very wily e. coyote coded for sure. And there were even more examples than that. During other attempts, it's said that he became flustered and he couldn't even light the fuse in order to even attempt to blow a safe open. So,
0: needless to repeat, he was not the best criminal in the world.
1: Fun fact about all of this, he committed all of these crimes, or at least attempted to, under the fake name Charles Smith. And I find it interesting that he would name himself after his potential daddy cousin.
0: I'm sure therapists would love to sit and unpack that with him. Oh, they sure would. (laughs) He spent a period of time hiding in a farmer's shed after he realized that he was at a very high risk of being arrested and this time
1: possibly executed. When he was finally ready to leave, he decided it was a good time to attempt to pull off his biggest heist yet.
0: The idea was that he was going to rob a train that was carrying $400,000, which was I mean, we just said what a fortune $4,000 was, so imagine $400,000 back then. This was a huge deal. He got together a crew, and on October 4th, it was time for the crime that he was sure would land him in the history books.
1: Somehow, some way, Elmer managed to mess this up so badly that it's almost like something out of a horrible, cheesy Western comedy. We don't know
0: exactly how he managed this, but when Elmer boarded the train in an attempt to rob it, he realized that he wasn't even on the right train. Nope. Oh my god. This
1: this <laughs> is slapstick level comedy. It, he's the king of the mulligan to me. Like He's just like an absolute fool. If there's any
0: of those sort of stereotypical characters out there where nothing can go right from them this is elmer mccurdy and he even has a name that matches his character it
1: really does i don't know who looks at a baby and is like we're gonna call him elmer i i almost (laughs) feel feel at that point that it becomes self-fulfilling prophecy it really does
0: He still managed to make off with what he could and left the scene a whopping $46 richer. He also managed to score two bottles of whiskey and a few items given to him by
1: the concerned passengers. <laughs> oh my god, what a charity case. Can you imagine? I just picture him walking onto the train looking around because what happened was he was expecting like money and gold and things like that on this train and he got on and realized there were people on the train instead so he didn't even expect there to be people and then all of a sudden it's a full passenger train and he's just like oh Elmer McCurdy might have been a time traveler who went
0: back to Western times, but had only ever seen cheesy Western comedies in black and white and thought, hey, I'm going to like really make something of myself here, but didn't really realize what it was to live back then.
1: (laughs) Honestly, it's someone playing Red Dead Redemption on hard difficulty and being terrible at it fucking it all up one, oh my like, god. one train
0: heist at a time oh my god okay so uh he made his way whiskey in hand to another farm where he decided he would hide away until the heat had died down but this wouldn't be like the other times this time there was no getting away
1: on october 7th 1911 a team of three sheriffs and their pack of bloodhounds were led to his hideout They declared that he was under arrest and ordered him to surrender peacefully. In true Elmer fashion, he declared that he would never be taken alive. We
0: don't know who fired the first shot, but a gunfight began.
1: And you know what I picture here too? (laughs) Hmm, do tell. It's just him. You'll never take me alive. And he's just like (laughs) shooting in the air like, woohoo. I just, he is, he's a caricature at this point. He is. He's living his very
0: best main character life, for sure. (laughs) Elmer was not a main character, but he sure did his best to be one. (laughs) He really did. The entire ordeal lasted about an hour, and eventually shooting from Elmer's side stopped. When they investigated further, they found him on the ground dead from a single gunshot wound to the chest.
1: And while this was the end of the life of Elmer McCurdy, it was only the beginning of the story that would earn his spot in grim history.
0: Yeah, because now we've covered who he was in life, but if you recall at the beginning, we mentioned his corpse. So,
1: it is now time to cover Elmer McCurdy's adventures after his death. But before we get into that, we're going to take a second to talk about early 1900s funeral practices, and I'm not going to lie, I find this stuff fascinating.
0: Oh, same. It's very ritualistic in itself, and mourning could last for years at a time. After his death, Elmer's body was taken to Pahuska, Oklahoma, where funeral director Joseph L. Johnson would prepare it for burial. He used a special arsenic-laced preservative that would ensure the body would never
1: fully decay. All in all, it was a job well done. There was one problem. When it came time to claim the body, no one showed up. As time went on, Joseph became incredibly annoyed that he wasn't going to get paid for his hard work. After all, they weren't just abandoning their corpse, they had a bill to pay. Luckily,
0: funeral directors at the time had a great use for unclaimed bodies. They made fantastic advertisements of their work.
1: So what they would do is they would take these unclaimed bodies and they'd prop them up outside, but he was so proud of his work that he wanted to keep this one close to him. So he displayed him standing up inside the parlor and they propped him up with a little sign that dubbed him the bandit who wouldn't give up. And if that isn't bad enough, he then charged people money
0: to look at his corpse. Since the mouth was open, he would instruct his visitors to place their money inside of it. There is one story that was reported on a few different occasions that he would let his kids play with him like a toy, and that on one occasion
1: they even put roller skates on him and paraded him throughout their house. We don't know if that's completely true or not, but we've covered the treatment of bodies and the weird viewpoints people had towards death during this time on multiple occasions on the show. And it wouldn't surprise me if this happened, especially considering everything that's going to come after that. While they were
0: making some pretty serious cash from him and word began to spread about the Johnson Funeral Home and its unique attraction.
1: It didn't take long until people wanted in. Multiple people stopped by and made offers on the corpse, however Joseph L. Johnson refused to sell him. This went on for 5 years until one day a pair of men turned up and wanted to claim the corpse. They stated that they were the brothers of Elmer McCurdy and they wanted to give their brother a proper burial. Johnson agreed that it was the right thing to do so
0: he gave the body to the brothers and went on with his life.
1: However, for Elmer it wouldn't be nearly that simple. For starters, the two men were not his brothers. They had never even met Elmer while he was alive, at least. They were Charles and James Patterson.
0: They were a pair of carneys, and they were ready to take Elmer's corpse out all over the country. This would be his fate for the next six decades. He often went by the bandit who wouldn't give up, but they also called him the embalmed bandit and the mystery man of many aliases.
1: He had some pretty significant moments in his career as a sideshow display. In 1922, he became a part of the famous Museum of Crime sideshow, and in 1928, he joined the Trans American Foot Race. And I-, I love how we're talking about him like he's still alive, because it all it seems to me like at this point he's accomplished more in death than he did in life. I mean, he certainly traveled more than a lot of people get the chance to, and
0: I would say he probably met more people in death than he did being alive. (laughs) The new owners would rent him out on occasion. He was used as an attention-grabbing promotional tool at the premiere of the 1933 film Narcotic, where they claimed he was the result of being what they called a dope fiend.
1: He also was once damaged due to being transported on the roof of a car like a Christmas tree.
0: But at least in death, he came with a brand new story. He was no longer the wannabe outlaw who couldn't even rob a safe. He was
1: a legend. At one point, his body was even displayed next to the one and only Billy the Kid. By the late 1960s, the appeal of sideshow
0: carnivals and corpse displays had died down and therefore Elmer's career as a display came to an end. In
1: 1967, he was sold as part of a bulk deal to a wax museum who took one look at him and determined he was far too grotesque looking for them to display.
0: He was eventually purchased by new owners. The first thing they did was drill a hole in the back of his neck so they could properly display
1: him at their funhouse. Apparently, when they did this, a thick yellow goo came out of the hole, which was jarring considering the fact that he essentially looked like a giant piece of beef jerky at this point.
0: That is absolutely painting a picture, and the goo, that sounds absolutely horrific, but I can only imagine that it's just embalming fluid that's thickened over the (laughs) years. Oh, gnarly. They suspended him from a contraption that would cause him to shake and rattle like a spooky skeleton every time the train cars rode
1: by. It wasn't long after that that his identity became forgotten and he was dubbed the thousand-year-old man. Eventually, he was spray-painted with glow-in-the-dark paint, which is how he would be discovered by the million-dollar man crew.
0: And this takes us all the way back to that fateful day in 1976. Once the crew realized they had a very, very real and very human body on their hands, they called the proper authorities and he was picked up and taken to the coroner's office.
1: On December 9th, Dr. Joseph Choi performed an autopsy and determined that the corpse belonged to a man who had died of a gunshot wound to the chest. By now, the body had been reduced to less than 50 pounds and was covered in a thick layer of phosphorus paint and wax.
0: He was missing some of his toes, his ears, and fingers, but a large amount of his hair remained. Further tests revealed that he was preserved with arsenic. They also showed that he had tuberculosis scarring,
1: something Elmer McCurdy definitely would have had. Another thing they found was a 1924 penny in his pocket, along with tickets to the Museum of Horror that had been launched in his mouth. Dr. Clyde Snow, a forensic anthropologist, was
0: able to take radiographs of the skull and superimpose them over photos of Elmer. By doing this, they were able to confirm that it was in fact the body of Elmer McCurdy.
1: And just like that, 65 years later, he got his name back.
0: It didn't take long for the media to get a hold of this story, and before anyone knew it, funeral homes were calling in droves offering to bury him free of charge.
1: He was finally put to rest in the same town that he died in, Guthrie, Oklahoma. People arrived dressed in their finest morning attire and all watched as he was finally buried and allowed to lay at peace. To ensure this, they buried him under six feet of concrete.
0: And that is the end of the story of Elmer McCurdy. Terrible criminal, but successful corpse. What, what a story that was. (laughs) My God, at first, I... I would love to see a movie about this if there is one. I feel like this almost could be a wholesome kind of,
1: like you said, Weekend at Bernie's kind of situation. Right? It's This is so outrageous. And I didn't know where this was going to go when we started with this. And by the end of it, I was just like, this happened? Are you serious? Like
0: I said, living his best main character life in life and death.
1: I will admit, it's really easy to forget that at some point this was a living, breathing human being with hopes and dreams. And it really does seem like at some point during all of this that does get completely forgotten, which is sad. Like, you have to admit that's pretty sad. It is, even if his hopes and dreams were to just blow shit up on trains. Right? They were hopes and dreams anyway, but... All of that being said, this is one of the wildest stories we've encountered in a hot minute. Not in the sense that it's scary or gruesome. This is just weird. This story comes with the level of legend that you
0: are used to hearing out of the wild, wild west. Especially with the train heists and the bank robberies and the blowing up safes with you know, nitroglycerin. There's that little part of you that's almost cheering him on (laughs) a little bit. Uh, Like I said, very Red Dead Redemption. Arthur Morgan, you're like, yeah, you're a criminal, but I love that man.
1: (laughs) Right. Like, as far as we know, he never killed anybody. He never really came close to killing anybody. He wasn't good enough at crime to really kill anybody. So he was just trying. I guess. And you know what? We can give it to him for that one. I don't want to get too far into what I believe about the afterlife, but there's a really big part of me that just pictures Elmer watching all of this and being like, what the fuck are you doing with me? If you were to come back as a zombie, but you were still to have a
0: ghost and your ghost (laughs) is just following the zombie around, like this is what happened here, basically. (laughs) Oh my goodness. (laughs) Oh man. Next week, we are starting a big brand new and absolutely terrible series and we kind of hinted at it what it was before but
1: yeah it's gonna be a rough one it's uh yeah it's a cult folks
0: (laughs) (laughs) and it's a Canadian cult at that and one of the worst cults I would say I've mentioned it before but it was one of the first stories that actually turned my stomach when it came to the crew the true crime world
1: for sure Me, me too it's we definitely have that in common and um we're gonna go through it together like we always do
0: Yep, it will certainly be a few episodes uh, because it is, yeah, seven levels of fucked up. But we'll get into it next week, not to hype it up too, too much. <laughs> we have once again come to that part of the episode where we take a moment to thank our wonderful VIPs on Patreon
1: and up. A very huge thank you to Bob, Atlantean Jedi, Lisa, Hillary, Brian, Judy, Mayhem Mudkip, and Triforce. Y'all are wonderful human beings. We
0: love you and appreciate you. And of course, we appreciate everybody that tunes in to listen. Um, as usual, just quick reminders. If you would like to give us five stars wherever you're listening, if you dig us. And if you're listening at this point in the episode, I'm assuming you don't mind us too much. So right. thanks for sticking around. Comment, share, all that good stuff. It helps us grow. Okay, let's talk about the live show real quick because it is coming up.
1: It is, as of today, a month away. Holy shit. Jesus That's Christ. So soon. Oh my God. Okay. Super soon. Tickets are still available. They are available on Eventbrite, and that show is on December the 9th at Felice Cafe in Edmonton, Alberta. We are going for a film noir theme, and we are donating 100% of ticket sales to Zoe's Animal Rescue. We're so excited. So if you're in the area, come on out. It's going to be an amazing time, and uh, hopefully, the first of many. We'll see what happens.
0: I'm very much looking forward to it. And we've got some interesting topics lined up for you. And yes, I'm very excited. So if you want tickets, they're certainly still available. And we will see you there. Thank you all so much for
1: listening. This has been The The Grim Grim Curriculum. Curriculum. Hey, Charlotte. Mm -hmm. Did you know that today there are about 300 bodies that are frozen in liquid nitrogen in America in the hope that science will one day be able to bring them back to life. And uh, they're thinking it's going to be about 300 years from now. And I don't want to know what the planet is going to be like 300 years from now.
0: I was going to say, I don't want to be preserved because I just want to go out and figure out what's happening after death after this one. Because is the planet going to be worth coming back to? Right. I'm picturing a fallout scenario same i think yes i will remain dead when i make it there and hopefully on my own terms me
1: too bye bye